Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Do you want to learn how to manage your own investments? Are you ready to stop paying investment management fees and start building wealth? The DIY Investing Podcast is dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, and resources you need to be a better investor. Learn how to make investments through the use of fundamental analysis, mental models, and business management insights. Now, here's your host, value investing expert, Trey Henninger. Hello and welcome to the DIY Investing Podcast. My name is Trey Henniger and I'm your host. If you're listening to today's podcast on YouTube, please be sure to hit the like button and also subscribe to the YouTube channel. If you're listening on any other podcast platform, a five-star rating and review are much appreciated and don't forget to subscribe. Thank you for your support. In today's episode, I want to discuss discounted cash flow models and why you should not do them, even though they are theoretically the correct way to value a company. I did a poll on Twitter this week asking what should be my next you my next podcast episode, and this one won. So today's episode is about being precisely wrong but roughly right. Discounted cash flow models, or DCFs, are the theoretically correct way to value a company. And this makes sense when you understand what they are. So a DCF, is an, what you would do is you would estimate all the future cash flows for a company, whether it be dividends or earnings, depending upon how you're doing your model, and then discount them back to the present. And when you add up all those values, get, you get the intrinsic value of a company. What this allows you to do is if all of your information that you input is right, then the discounted cash flow model will tell you the exact price you should be willing to pay for that company. And this is precise, but it's inaccurate. And precision and accuracy are really important to understand. What precision does, it allows you to pinpoint a specific target um, and this is what you'll often see when people or analysts give target prices for companies. They'll say oh, the target price is $120 or the target price is $50. And what they can do is with the DCF, you can give a very precise number that says this company is worth X or this company is worth 2X. The problem is, is that although that number is precise, it's also wrong because what happens is your model can be correct if all of the assumptions are correct. But if any of the assumptions are wrong, then your model's wrong. Well, your assumptions are always going to be wrong. It's absolutely impossible to predict with certainty the numbers that would go into a discounted cash flow model. And so if you can't predict with certainty the numbers that you're putting into your model, then you know that the numbers that you get out of your model are also wrong. So although a DCF is a theoretically correct way to value a company, 
it has a lot of pitfalls because what it will cause you to do is it will cause you to make assumptions that make you feel good about the work you're doing. You're you know analyzing a company, you're determining your growth rates, you're estimating, oh, it's going to grow at 10% the next five years, 8% the five years after that, and maybe 4% in perpetuity after that. You might play around with the discount rate. So should the discount rate be 7%, 8%, 9%, 10%? You might look at interest rates. You know, what are the inflation rate expectations? And all of these little inputs go into determining what goes into your model. Well, in order to do this properly, you're going to have to take out an Excel file or some other spreadsheet program, put in all of your data, put in all of your estimates, and you'll be able to calculate the number. Or we're going to ignore the problem that can happen with any spreadsheet and where you just happen to fat finger a number and you get the wrong number out. But assuming you put in all the information as you want it put in, you're still running into this problem that your assumptions are a critical failure point for your model. And this is where you should try and consider that it's better to be roughly right instead of precisely wrong. And by roughly right, I mean using methods that don't use an explicit discounted cash flow model. Now, this episode is not to say that I never do DCFs. In fact, I would say I almost always run a form of DCF for every investment that I make. However, I don't use a spreadsheet. I only do DCFs that I can do it calculate in my head. Now, I've been pretty good in the past with um, doing math in my head. So perhaps I have a greater ability to do this than many people, but I try and focus and keep them very, very simple. And I'm gonna walk through in this episode the types of DCFs I've run. And what you'll see is I'm not really running a DCF. I'm using the logic of a DCF. I'm using the valuation methodology of a discounted cash flow model, but I'm not using the precision of the DCF. I'm trying to be very rough with my guesses. I'm trying to be very rough with my estimates because that roughness allows me to be more conservative and prevents me from making as many mistakes. It means that my assumptions can going into the model are a lot more consistent, a lot more useful, so hopefully my results are more useful. <laughs> so how do I do that? Well, really what we're talking about here is we're talking about using ranges for your intrinsic value instead of precise numbers. So instead of a, a number that says, you know, this company is worth $120, you might have a calculation that says the company is worth somewhere between $80 and $150. Now, on the surface, the $120 estimate seems like it's a lot more useful. Because if the company's trading at, you know, $100 per share, then you can say, oh, well, I know it's worth 20% more than it is today. But the problem is, is the underlying assumptions that you used might have an error range from $80 to $150. And that can be more useful because what you want to say is, okay, maybe if you estimate a range of values, then you have that $80 to $150 and the stock's trading at $100 per share. You might be able to say, well, maybe there's a 70% chance the company's undervalued, but a 30% chance the company's fair valued or overvalued. 
Well, that's a lot less attractive of a deal. However, if you have that same estimate range of $80 to $150 per share for your intrinsic value estimate, it's a big range you're using wide assumptions that you think take into account many different scenarios. But the stock's trading at $60 per share. But you think the lowest absolute estimate you can come up with for this company is $80 per share, and it's the range of 80 to 150 Well, now you have that margin of safety for being about 20% below your intrinsic value estimate on the low end. But you have this huge upside available because you, your range says, oh, well, maybe I'm buying at 60 and it's actually worth 150 And so if your numbers are wrong and it's worth only 80, you're still buying below value. But if your numbers are right on the upside, then you have huge upside in your availability. And these are the types of ranges you might see. It's you're still probably being too precise if your intrinsic value estimate for a stock only has a range or variation of 10 or 20 or 30%. (laughs) A normal variation could be what I just said where the stock might be worth half, you know, or double the price that the low end of it is. So you could have a huge range here. If you're talking 50, 60, 70% ranges, um, it's all going to depend upon the certainty you have around your estimates. But what you're trying to do is you're really trying to get an understanding of what are the range of possible outcomes that are available for a company. You know, most people, when they think about companies, they're thinking about, okay, well, how much will this company grow? Well, is a possible outcome that the company doesn't grow? Do you need to run an estimate where the growth rate of a company is 0%? Do you need to run an estimate for the company that it might shrink over the next 10 years? Is that a reasonable possibility? For a lot of companies, it's not. But for a lot of companies, it is. And if you're estimating growth of 3 or 4%, but the company declines in value by 1% a year, that's a huge difference in your ultimate valuation. So you really need to think, even if your estimate is, well, I think the company's going to run you know, 6% growth a year, but maybe there's a chance that they don't grow at all. You need to know that. And you need to calculate that. You need to have an idea of what that means for your valuation, and that should be taken into account in your valuation range. So how do I do this? Well, what I like to do is I like to simplify the equations as much as possible. So a discounted cash flow is trying to estimate the future value of your earnings and dividends and discount it back to the present. So one of the key points of that is a discount rate. Now, many analysts and professionals like to vary their discount rate between companies. Maybe one company deserves a discount rate of 6% because it's low risk, something like a Disney. Maybe something that's, you know, kind of medium risk, um, like a Wells Fargo needs a discount rate of 10%. Maybe something high risk, like a, a healthcare pharmaceutical company trying to create the new coronavirus vaccine is high risk, so it's going to have a discount rate of 15%. I think that's nonsense, and I don't do that. And I don't do it for a very specific reason. When you change the discount rate, you're changing a lot more than you than simply the risk you're willing to take on. You're changing the value of the company you're willing to accept in terms of your return. A discount rate is basically your hurdle rate for return. So if your acceptable rate of return is 
then you need to use a 6% discount rate for every investment calculation you do. Every DCF you do, no matter which company, should use a 6% discount rate. If your acceptable rate of return is 10% per year, if you can achieve your financial goals with a 10% per year discount rate, every DCF you do, every you know, shortcut DCF you do needs to use a 10% discount rate for your calculations. And the same is true whatever your number is. You need to determine your discount rate in advance before you ever think about doing investments. And that's one of the first things you should be doing because it helps you understand what types of returns am I seeking? What types of returns are going to help me achieve my goals? Once you've done that, then you can go on to the next step of trying to value companies. So for me, I simplify it down and I use a single discount rate for every intrinsic value calculation I use. And I've talked about it before on the podcast, I use 10%. There's a few reasons for this. I think 10% allows me to reach my goals, but it also has the side benefit of it makes all your calculations super simple and easy. 10% is really easy to use during these calculations. Makes numbers nice and easy, nice round numbers to work with. So... The next thing you need to understand is are you using your dividends or earnings? Now, for companies that don't pay dividends, you have two options. Option one is the intrinsic value of the company is zero because the value to shareholders for a company comes from the stream of dividends that that company pays. And if you can't estimate the dividends that the company will pay or could pay, then the company is worthless to you. Anything else is speculation. If you can't estimate what a company is able to pay in dividends, even when they're not paying dividends, then you should not buy the company. It's very simple. And if a company can't pay dividends, then you should not buy the company. Quite simple here. So that's option one, is the company's worthless. Option two is you can earn use earnings as a substitute. Now, it's difficult because for a lot of companies, even the ones that pay dividends, most of the companies earn more money than they pay in dividends. So you're going to have to be very careful choosing earnings because the number is always going to look more favorable. The earnings are always going to be better than the, the dividends. So what you have to be very sure of is that the earnings are being profitably invested at a rate higher than your discount rate. So if your discount rate is 10%, you need to monitor the return on equity of the company and make sure the company's return on equity is at least 10%, but ideally much higher. For me, I want a margin of safety on that number. So if I'm going to have a discount rate of 10% and I'm going to rely on a company's earnings being profitably invested, I want a 50% margin of safety, which means I need a return on equity of at least 15%. That means that the company, when they retain their earnings, are going to earn me a 15% rate of return or more. And then I can get the 10% on my dividends, and I can potentially get more than 10% on the earnings. But if the return on equity is only 11 or 12%, well, maybe their incremental savings of my earnings are getting less than 10%, and that can destroy your whole calculation. So you're trying to really be very conservative with this. Um. So I like using dividends over earnings, but there's some companies that don't pay earning that don't pay dividends now because they're able to grow a lot um, that can make it worth it um, to use earnings because they're not paying you dividends. So, and I certainly do that on a few companies that don't pay me dividends. 
The last piece is growth rate. Um, as an alternative to doing a full discounted cash flow model, I like to use the Gordon growth model, which is a form of simplified DCF that I can calculate in my head. So the Gordon growth model assumes that you're going to have a perpetual, which means lasting forever, constant growth of a dividend. And it's a very simple to calculate. You basically take next year's dividend, which again is predicting the future. So there's an assumption that you have to make. And you divide that by the discount rate minus the constant growth rate of that dividend. If you were to use earnings instead, you would take next year's earnings and divide that by the discount rate minus the constant growth rate of earnings into the future. So what does this look like? So we're going to use an example here to help people understand what we're talking about. Um, before we get into a company example, I'm going to use just a very basic example. So if we had a dividend of $1 per share that we expect for next year, our discount rate is 10%, and the constant growth rate of that dividend is 5%, then you would basically take the dividend is $1, divided by 10% minus 5% is 5%. So you'd have $1 divided by 5% is equal to $20. Because that's $1 divided by 0.05 for those following along. And that is equal to 20. That means the company with those characteristics, a 5% perpetual growth rate of a $1 dividend, is worth $20 per share. So let's get into some more specific examples here. So one example I want to use, because everyone's probably heard of it, is Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola has the ticker KO. And um, a quick information from my broker says that Coca-Cola pays $1.64 in dividends each year. And I'm not going to make it an estimate for this being, you know, a specific number for next year. I don't want to estimate each and every year out into the future. Um, but let's say it's $1.64. Now, if I were doing a discounted cash flow analysis, a true one using Excel, what I would do is I'd have to say, okay, maybe the dividend in 2020 is $1.64. Maybe the dividend in 2021 is $1.70. Maybe the dividend in 2022 is $1.73. And then maybe they up it a lot and it goes to $2.00. And then maybe a year after that, the dividend goes from $2 to $2.01 because they went really quickly. They have to slow it down. And I'd estimate on and on and on. And eventually I'd say, okay, well, maybe I estimate the first 10 years specifically or 20 years specifically. And then after 20 years, I say, okay, well, I can't really estimate, you know, what dividends are going to be in 2050. So I'll just use a perpetual growth rate from that point forward. And say the earnings or the dividends beyond that point will grow at 3% a year. Well, if I did that, maybe I estimate that the total specific value using a detailed DCF for Coca Cola is worth $27.85 per share. That's very specific. But instead, what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at it and say, okay, let's assume a few different growth rates and see what those numbers come out to. So the dividend is $1.64 at Coca-Cola. So what is the value of Coca-Cola stock if the dividend grows at a constant 3% rate going forward? 
And the calculations, again, is very simple. You take the dividend of $1.64 and you divide it by your discount rate, which is 10% minus 3%. So you get divide it by 7%. And then you get a value of $23.42. Now, where does that value come from? Well, I said that the dividend is divided by 7% because that's 10% minus 3% is 7%. What that's doing is it's calculating the price at which Coca-Cola would be equivalent to a 7% dividend yield. So So that means that if I think the growth rate is 3%, That means in order to get a 10% rate of return, I need to buy a current 7% dividend yield. And then if I add a 3% growth rate, I'll get 10% total return. Because that discount rate is the return that I'm calculating for. And so the simple way to think about this, and this is where you can start doing the math in your head, is you're saying, okay, you can calculate the value of a company very quickly by just adding up the dividend yield and the dividend growth rate. So if my dividend yield is 7% and my growth rate is 3%, then my total return would be 10% a year. But if the dividend yield is 7% and the growth rate is 5%, well now my my total return is 12% because you got seven plus five is 12. So let's look at another value for Coca-Cola here. And let's say, okay, our low range for estimated growth was 3%. But we think on the high end, you know, Coca-Cola might be able to grow at a 5% rate going forward. Well, if Coca-Cola grows at 5%, well, now we only need a 5% dividend yield in order to get our 10% rate of return. And a 5% dividend yield is equivalent to a $32.80 stock price. So now we have a range we set a low-end estimate for what we think Coca-Cola is going to grow in and a high-end estimate. And that range would say that Coca-Cola's stock price is worth somewhere between $23.42 per share and $32.80 per share. That range of $23 to $32 is quite large. We're talking about a 40 to 50% difference between the small and the large stock price. But in fact, that's a very precise estimate when you think about the differences between a 3 and a 5% growth rate because those are very different in terms of the GDP numbers needed to achieve that, the revenue growth needed to achieve that, the number of bottles being produced every year. So it can be a quite a big range there. Now, if we compare this to the current stock price of Coca-Cola, which is $46 per share, then we'd have to say that Coca-Cola is overvalued. But pause for a second here. Why is it overvalued? Well, it's overvalued because we assumed a dividend growth rate of um, up to a max of 5%. Well, Charlie Munger urges us to always invert our assessment and figure out, okay, well, what dividend growth rate is the market assuming? And we can simply take the current stock price and figure out the current dividend yield to determine the growth rate of dividends that the market assumes Coca-Cola is worth. So the current dividend yield of Coca-Cola with the $46 per share stock price is 3.5%. Using our simple do-it-in-your-head growth model, the Gordon growth model, what we would do is just switch it around. So in order to get to our 10% discount rate, if we have a 3.5% dividend yield, 
then you have to add an additional 6.5 to get up to your 10% total return, which means that the current market price of Coca-Cola is being valued at the market based upon perpetual growth of dividends at a 6.5% rate. This means that they think that Coca-Cola is going to grow its dividends 6.5% this year, 6.5% next year, 6.5% five years from now, 10 years from now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, etc., etc., etc. Now, I think that estimate is high. Coca-Cola is already a mature company. It doesn't have much more market space to grow. This is in almost, Coca-Cola is in, I believe, every country on earth or almost every country on earth. And it has a quite saturated marketplace. You have people consuming a large number of Coca-Cola every day. So it's dependent upon population growth rates, and it's dependent upon price increases. So can you have population growth plus price increase reach 6.5% a year? Maybe. But for me, I'm more comfortable with 3% to 5%. That's what my estimate of the numbers are. But you need to decide. If you think Coca-Cola can achieve a 6.5% growth rate in perpetuity, then they're fairly valued today. If you think they can grow dividends faster than 6.5%, then they might be undervalued. But the point here is is that you need to come up with a range. My range of estimates where I think Coca-Cola ends up is 3 to 5%. I'm trying to make those things conservative. I'm trying to estimate what range I think it is. But I think it'd be really hard for Coca-Cola to be less than 3% because of their strong market power. But obviously it could be. But that's what I think is a reasonable conservative estimate. But I think 5% is quite fast growth for Coca-Cola in the long term. Now they might grow faster now, but at some point they're going to slow down. So any growth they have today will be offset by slower growth in the future. So The second example of how I think about this and how I use this idea of being roughly right is I try and think in terms of the P.E. ratio for a growing company. So I talked in one of my previous podcasts how I want to quickly reach a 10% earnings yield. This is based upon that 10% growth rate or the 10% discount rate of this Gordon growth model. And so if we're using earnings instead of dividends, then... You can do this as a two-part step. And one way I like to think about the companies that aren't paying dividends is I like to assume that they will pay dividends in five years. Now, a lot of companies that aren't paying dividends today are highly unlikely to be paying dividends in five years. But I want to try and come up with a situation where they grow for five years and then they stop growing in order to pay me out dividends with all of their earnings. Stop retaining earnings and they start paying me dividends. And I want to say they're going to start paying me dividends in five years. So, what does that mean? Well, if I want a 10% rate of return, that means five years from now, they better be able to pay me 10%, a 10% dividend yield on my purchase. And I want them to reach that in less than five years. Because at that five-year mark, they need to be able to pay all of that money out to me in dividends and not have to use it to grow anymore. So the other piece I want to do is I want to make this very conservative and very easy to estimate. I want to be able to do these calculations in my head. I don't want to have to think about them to be super hard. 
So how, what does this mean? It means I'm not going to do compound interest calculations. I'm going to do simple interest calculations. So what's the difference between compound interest and simple interest? Well, compound interest, or simple, let's start with simple interest. Simple interest is very easy. You said, say you're earning a dollar per share today. That means if you get 10% interest, you're going to earn a 10 cents of interest, and you're going to be earning, a, have a dollar and 10 cents at the end of one year. At the end of, on the second year, you're going to earn simple interest of 10% on the first dollar and no interest on the 10% you earned in year one. That means in year two, you earn 10% interest. In year three, you earn 10% interest. In year four, you earn 10% interest. And in year five, you earn 10% interest. It means at the end of five years, you have a dollar and 50 cents because you only earned your 10% simple interest on the starting dollar. Now, compound interest is different. Compound interest means you earn interest on your interest money. That means in the first year, you still earn the same 10 cents on the dollar. So, But in year one, you now have at the end of year one, a dollar and 10 cents. Compound interest means in year two, you earn 10% on that. So now you have 11 cents that you earned this year, which means you're now earning up to, you're up to a dollar and 21 cents at the end of year two, and that continues in compound. So at the end of five years, you don't have a dollar and 50 cents. You have much more than that. You're at somewhere in the dollar 55, dollar 60 range without running the calculation right now. But why would I do this? Well, I want it to be a very simple calculation you can do in your head. So what this means is that without compounding, let's talk about PE ratios. In order to have a 10% earnings yield, you need a PE of 10 because 100 divided by 10 gives you a 10% yield. Well, what if you are a growing company? So for the first five years, we're gonna assume you're growing. Well, that means without compounding, a 10% grower, you could pay a PE of 15. Because every year, that 15 is gonna drop by 10%. It's gonna go down from 15 to 14, after one year, from 14 to 13, after year two, from 13 to 12, after year three, 12 to, to 11, and 11 to 10. In five years, you can go from PE of 15 to PE of 10. Now, we're not assuming compounding. We're assuming simple because this makes the calculation easier. And what this means is that for every 10% growth, you drop the PE by one. So that means for a 10% grower, you can pay a PE of 15. For a 5% grower, you can pay a PE of 12.5. Now, these are very simple rules of thumb, but they allow you to do these calculations in your head to quickly judge what the value of a company is. It also means for a 20% grower, you can pay a maximum PE of 20. And I never assume the comp a company can grow faster than 20%, which means that I never want to buy a company for a PE over 20 and see, all of these numbers assume that you can sustain whatever growth rate you're assuming for those full five years. And I'm ignoring the compounding effect because it makes it simple. It makes it something you can do in your head. The compounding will cause you to start getting into decimals and fractions. Now you got to get out a calculator. Now you have to get out in a spreadsheet. And we're trying to avoid all that. What the spreadsheet allows you to do, it allows you to be precise. But I'm, my argument today is that the precision will make you wrong. 
You want to be roughly right. You want a large margin of safety. You want all of those things going in your favor. You never want to make an assumption that is too favorable for you. If the company does better than your estimates, you're going to make the money. You're going to make more money than you estimate. That's good. That's fine. But what you need to avoid is you need to avoid losing money. And you lose money by overestimating the value of a company and by buying bad companies. Don't do that. And the way I like to avoid it is I avoid using precise DCFs. I avoid using what many people would even consider a DCF. I know there's some podcast I've listened to where they say that this Gordon growth model isn't even a DCF. Or saying that, you know, the dividend yield plus the growth rate doesn't count as a DCF. So that's what I'm talking about here. Don't do what many people consider a DCF. Do these simple heuristics that allow you to save time, but I believe will also allow you to save money by not buying overvalued companies. The important point that we have to touch on before we end this show is that not every company will allow you to do this. These models assume constant growth rates. These models assume relatively stable earnings, relatively stable dividends, relatively stable performance from your company. If they're cyclical, it can be really hard to use these numbers, to use these estimates. If the company sometimes loses money, it can be really hard to use this model. If you're unable to estimate some sort of perpetual growth rate. It's going to be really hard to use this model. If the company doesn't pay dividends, it's going to be harder to use this model, but you still can. So what does that mean? Well, I would argue you should avoid all of those companies. If you can't estimate the intrinsic value of a company using a a scenario like this that's roughly right, then it's easier simply to not invest than to potentially invest in a situation that's more complicated and can cause you to lose money. I've developed this heuristic because for me, it prevents me from making mistakes. It reduces the likelihood of making mistakes and mistakes lead to losing money. That means I try to avoid buying cyclical companies. I try to avoid buying companies that lose money not just now, but in the future. I want companies that always are earning money. And I also avoid companies that are shrinking or not growing because I want to be able to assume that they're able to grow in a stable manner, which means I also avoid companies that aren't stable. And finally, it means you tend to avoid fast-growing companies because you can't justify their P.E. ratios with the growth rates necessary to do so. Does this mean I miss out on opportunities? Yes. But it also means that ideally, I avoid some mistakes. So I hope this has been useful. This was the most requested episode topic in my Twitter poll. If you're not following me on Twitter, please follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Trey Henniger. You can also find a link to that in the show notes. The show notes for this episode, including my outline for today's podcast, are available at diyinvesting.org slash episode 85. Please remember this is a listener-supported podcast. You can support the show financially as a patron at diyinvesting.org slash p-a-t-r-o-n. Thank you for listening, and until next time, stop paying fees, start building wealth.
Thank you for listening to the DIY Investing Podcast. Please visit our website and subscribe to our email list at DIYinvesting.org for guides, videos, and resources to help make you a better investor. The DIY Investing Podcast is presented for general informational and entertainment purposes only. I have not considered your specific situation or risk profile, and I have not provided investment advice. The information presented on the DIY Investing Podcast should not be construed as investment advice. The views and opinions expressed on the DIY Investing Podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's host or sponsors. DIY Investing, its producers, sponsors, and host, Trey Henniger, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based upon information or viewpoints presented on the DIY Investing Podcast.